Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. The scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising, and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there, ahead of them, went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a few moments now for silent reflection. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we listen to this story, for some of us it's quite a familiar story and the danger is that it's become so familiar we can miss the power that is in it. For others of us, this story is new to us. Maybe we've heard it in songs or in uh, Christmas specials on TV and yet we have yet to really open our eyes to the depth of what this means for us. But however we find ourselves right now, Believing or unbelieving, hopeful or sorrowful, help us to see that each of us has far more in common than we realize. On one hand, each of us is what we might call a beautiful mess. None of us has it fully all together. In fact, when we're honest with ourselves, we realize we're more of a mess than we even know. And at the same time, you see us in all our complexity and contradictions and the ways we get it, the ways we don't get it, you know us and you love us more than we even love ourselves. 
And this love is expressed in its fullness in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now as we open these scriptures, as we examine them and apply them to our lives and our world, we pray that you would teach us by the Holy Spirit in a way that our lives would be transformed and our world would be renewed. We pray that you would do for us what we could never do for ourselves, that you would be at work rescuing us, breathing your life into us even now. We pray these things for our good and for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I told you a few weeks ago that one of my neighbors had come to me, one of my beloved and dear neighbors had come to me and said, you're all beloved and dear. If all my neighbors are watching right now, I love you all equally. But one of them came to me and said, you know, I realize that I don't know the Christmas story all that well, and neither do my children. And Pastor Matt, would you come over and, and do porch time with Pastor Matt and do some uh, Christmas story time? So we did that. We did the first installment of that to a roaring success. I mean, rave reviews. If everybody in the audience could write, I'm sure they would have written great reviews for what happened right there. Um, but also what's happening there on that porch is this kind of overview of the Christmas story. But if you've paid attention over the last few weeks as we approached Christmas and then gathered on Christmas Eve, and now here we are on the Feast of Epiphany, hold that because we'll get to Epiphany in a second, this is some of the greatest hits of the Christmas story. This is the story of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, of the, of the shepherds coming and visiting him and, and giving him great glory and praise, and now of the magi, the wise men coming and visiting him. So this kind of stands as a multi-volume piece. If you're trying to get your arms around the Christmas story, go back and listen to the last few podcasts, the sermons from this church, share them with your friends, because this is the story. Now, Recently, I don't know why, but I got into reviewing that 90s show. If you ever saw the 90s show called uh, on VH1, it was Behind the Music. And they do these different uh, episodes, and it shows you, you know, you know, you think you know what was happening with the band at the time, but you really had no idea that all this stuff was going on underneath the surface. And, uh, what, you know, in some ways, I want to be able to do that for you this morning, because this story comes to us, and maybe you've heard this, the song that is based on this story, you know, we three kings of Orient, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts, we travel far. I won't do that to you, but you, you know the song. And I want to say, you might think you know the story, but if, if that's your reference point, you actually don't know the story as well as you think you do. So for example, uh, we sing we three kings, but it doesn't say that they were three kings. It doesn't say they were kings at all. It says that they were magi, they were astrologers, dream interpreters, visionaries, and in fact, it doesn't say that there were three of them. It says there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it never gives you the number of magi that had arrived. It might have been two. It might have been 20. It might have been 200. Nobody really knows. But since they gave three gifts, we assume it might have been three people. But look, I gave my wife three gifts on Christmas. They're not three of me. So just know these are not three kings. These are who knows how many pagan astrologers, stargazers, gathering together. And guess what else? You see them in the nativity scene on Christmas time, and they're all in the manger there with the shepherds. Except they probably weren't in the manger at all with the shepherds because the shepherds came almost immediately, and you can imagine how long the travel time must have been from the Far East over to this place. In fact, by the time they get to Jesus, he's no longer in the baby in the manger. It says when they got to the house. So Joseph and Mary have somehow established at least temporary housing at this point. And the Magi are coming in. 
Now someone says, uh, you know, that these details really don't matter anyways because this is the stuff of legend. So details really don't matter. To which I would say, actually, I beg to differ with you. That's not the case for two reasons. First of all, legends don't include these kind of details. Legends begin, as we said last week, uh, a, a land far away at a time long ago. And these are kind of general things that you can listen to. But this is saying, no, specifically, uh, here are the gifts that they actually brought. Here's the town that they went to. Here's where they came from. It's giving you specific details, things that legends of this time in literature never would have done. But furthermore, I want you to note these magi, these astrologers, these magicians, interpreters of dreams. Um, this word appears throughout scripture, and in every time except for this, it's in a negative connotation. So throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever they talk about magi, astrologers, um, you know, horoscopes, all of that stuff, it's always in a negative context, saying stay away from those things as much as you can. And it's only right here in the Gospel of Matthew where it's talked about in a positive context. And most historians would say that no writer of that time would have made this story up. Because they would know that either any Jew or Christian who read this original story would have tons of red flags that would go up when the astrologers are put in the positive light. The most likely reason that Matthew included this in his gospel and told the story this way is simply, this is the way that it happened. So I want you to hold that as well. That In, in the time of Epiphany, Jesus appearing, um, Jesus manifesting God in the flesh, Part of the people who are included, and we'll get to this and unpack it later, are these pagan astrologers that nobody else would have included in a story like this. Now, why did he include them? In the Gospel of John, John says that Jesus did so many things throughout his life that if we were to include all of the things that he had done, there would be books and books and books and libraries and libraries about them. So all four Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had to decide what aspects of Jesus' life to include when they were writing their Gospel. And so why do you think Matthew included this story of what it looks like for Jesus' epiphany, for his appearing? See, the point of epiphany is not to point to ourselves, but to point to him, to point to Jesus manifested, to Jesus revealed. We're invited to see God made manifest in Jesus. And as we see that, we begin to receive his life and then embody that life wherever we go. We become part of the epiphany story also, manifesting God's loving presence wherever we go. And then as we do that, we have more epiphanies. That word epiphany, we use it in common language. Maybe you've used it before. You said, you know, I just had an epiphany. I really don't like the way my life is going. I just had an epiphany. I really don't like the career I'm in. An epiphany is a realization. And we're saying, as we realize who Christ is, we are invited to be his hands and feet wherever we go, helping the world to realize who he is. And as we put that mission into action, we actually realize more and more who he is. And on and on it goes in the upward spiral of life with God. This is the invitation of Epiphany today. That's what happens to these wise men, to these magi. They've been given the gift of seeing Jesus. They worship and they give in response and they are transformed and the world will never be the same. So let's just, in the time we have, take a look at this idea of of worshiping, of recognizing who Jesus is, 
and then making him manifest to others and then getting to know him even better. Worship comes from this old English word, worthship, to understand what he's worth and then to give him all that he's worth. So it reveals what to worship. It reveals who gets to worship. And then it reveals how you know if this is actually taking place in your life. So first, epiphany reveals what to worship. And I chose my words carefully there. I did not say uh, it invites you to begin to worship. Because I would make the case, and all you know, great philosophy and poetry and just life story tells us that all of us already are worshiping something. So the invitation of what to worship is not the invitation to begin to worship, but rather it's a realignment of what you're placing in the center of your life. Because you realign to what you worship, because that will transform and fulfill you instead of exhaust and use you. Um, let me see here if I have this quote for you. Ralph Waldo Emerson, in, uh, quoted in this book, Broken Tablets, wrote, That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our life and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we are worshiping, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. He's not writing that for a church. He's writing that for a general audience, but he's assuming what? He's assuming all of us place something in the center of our lives to give us meaning, to tell us we're going to be all right, to give us significance, to give us hope. And the question is, is that thing in the center of your life strong enough, buoyant enough, noble enough to hold your life and your life story? So Epiphany comes and asks, what are you worshiping? Or to go to a deeper level, what informs or directs your affections? How do you decide what you're going to place in the center of your life? How do you know what will make you happy? In an unstable time like this, as we begin the new year, how do you know what's going to bring you security or significance? I mean, some of us try to use the lens of our feelings, right? If it feels right, just do it. If it, feel, you know, if it feels so right, it can't be wrong. And then I would just ask you, have you ever felt so right about something? And then six months or six years later, you look back and you say, what was I thinking? I was completely wrong. My feelings completely betrayed me. So though feelings are a gift from God and they're not bad in and of themselves, they're not a great compass to help us decide what we're going to give our affections to or placed in the center of our life. So how do you do it? Do you judge by what others say? What the media says, what social media says, what your friends say, what the experts say, the latest data? The only problem with that is it changes. You know, the prevailing views on the op-ed column of whatever news you read will be outdated in 10 years or 50 years. The views on the op-ed column of the New York Times 50 years ago are as cringeworthy to us today as the op-ed views on the same paper will be in 50 years to our grandkids. As one theologian said, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. The wisdom of the world, it changes. It varies. And therefore, it's unreliable to tell you where you should place your affections or your worship. The wisdom of this world can tell us our problems. There are billions of dollars spent every year on marketing to help target the very pain points and hope points and decision points in your life. They can definitely put their finger on the desire, but they cannot tell you how to quench it with more entertainment, 
more activities, more diversions, more cars, more clothes, more likes on Instagram, more, you name it, more money. And so we end up more frantic and more exhausted. So how did the Magi figure out what to worship? This is something interesting. You can read the story again and again and watch the Christmas plays and hear the Christmas songs and miss that the Christmas pageants always get this part wrong. How did the Magi find Jesus? It wasn't the star that led them to Jesus. What led them to him? Not the star. It was the scripture. See, the star appears and they figure that it must be this great ruler born in Judea. Now, as a side note, this is uh, maybe I'll shift genres, VH1, from uh, behind, the, behind the music to pop-up video. Interestingly enough, uh, and some of you are going, I have no idea what any of these shows are. Uh, so anyways, if you do, then you are a child of the 80s and 90s like myself. If not, Google pop-up video. But here you go. So um, this whole practice of astrology actually got a major boost just around the time that Matthew's writing about Jesus. And part of it was, in ancient times... At the time where um, Julius Caesar was buried, there was a supernova in the sky. And so that actually gave a huge boost to the astrology business for a number of years because they began to reason that when a new king was born or died, there would be signs in the heavens. And so in the year that this is talking about, there actually was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn, much like we saw in the solstice just a few weeks ago. And if you're an astrologer who's looking to the heavens every day and tracking the course of the heavenly bodies, including the planets, and you see these two converge together, you realize something special is taking place in the heavens. This must be a sign that a new king is being born or a king is, is dying. Um, I remember going to a... Uh, um, a show on this at the Reuben H. Fleet Space Center before COVID about what was the Christmas star and you know, using scientific calculations and the physical properties. They are able to just scroll the sky back to this very period and recreate what that solstice would have looked like. Most uh, scientists that I've read believe that it could have occurred on May 29th, October 3rd, or December 4th. Okay, This is how specific they're getting to it. But the point is um, that if you're an astrologer in this time, and you remember that when something big happens in the heavens, it's a sign of royalty taking place. And you've seen this, you know, and you see this star, and you know the rumor. It makes complete historical sense to go to Jerusalem, where kings are, are born, uh, and ask, where would this king be? They go to Herod, the local regional king who oversees this area. Where would this king be? But it wasn't the star that led them. The star was able, the natural world, the beauty of the natural world was able to wake them up to the idea that something big is taking place. But it wasn't until they went to the scriptures. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. The beauty of the natural world woke them up. But it was the scripture that tuned them into the specifics of who Jesus is as he makes God known. Now, what's my point? I think for many of us, we're searching. We're realizing there has to be more meaning than this. There has to be more to life than this. And often it's the beauty of the natural world that wakes us up to it. 
You know, you can go down to Sunset Cliffs tonight and watch the sunset, and you know what will happen just as the sun is going down over the horizon. Without any coordination and any prompting, people who do not know each other at all will all begin to applaud. Because there's something in us that says that's so beautiful it's worth recognition, right? So the beauty of a sunset can clue you in to how gorgeous and beautiful and powerful and creative God is, but it can't reveal God to you. Maybe you've experienced great love, great love of a best friend, great love of a spouse, great love of children, and you realize there's something in us that wants to give and comes alive when it does. That can wake you up to the beauty and necessity of connection, but it can't tell you exactly who God is. Maybe it's just simply the spiritual sense that you have, that there has to be more to your life than this. Maybe there's this nagging sense that you are much more than just a collection of chemicals taking on their biological processes, but you're not sure what that is. You deeply desire to see and experience beauty, and yet all beauty that you experience is fleeting. Even the most beautiful sunset fades into the darkness of night. Even the most beautiful symphony finally strikes that final chord together, and it is finished. We long for beauty. We long for justice. We long for completion, and yet it seems so fleeting. Maybe that is like that great star just leading us to say, wake your heart and your soul and your mind up to something much bigger than yourself, but it's the scriptures that will lead you to who that is. And it's not a principle. It's not a plan. It's a person, and his name is Jesus. See, Romans 1 tells us that unaided reason can look at the world and see the beauty of creation. And we can know that there is a creator, but unaided reason can't find the creator. It isn't unless the creator has come and revealed himself and broken through to open the door and show us the way in. And that's what we celebrate at Epiphany. At Christmas, God comes to you, appears to us. You don't find God. God finds you and reveals what to worship. It also reveals who can worship. Uh, And the simple answer, and we've gone over this week after week. One theologian said, you know, pastors have it the hardest. They have to come up with a new sermon every week. But the story basically remains the same. The kingdom of God is at hand, and all people are invited into it as God has rescued all to himself in Christ. And we see it again today. Who can worship? Anybody and everybody. The Gospel of Matthew goes as far as he possibly can. You know, these magi who showed up, were part of the intelligentsia, wealthy, but religious outsiders. Earlier, we saw the shepherds, who at least nationally were Israelites, and yet they wouldn't have been welcomed at the temple either. We have wealthy and poor, young and old, locals and foreigners. Everybody is welcome at the scene. Just as the genealogy of Jesus shows that all are included, just as Israel's original calling was, I will bless you and through you, All the nations will be blessed. And now, at the very beginning of Jesus' life on earth, we're beginning to see that great calling and what it looks like when it comes to fruition. So when you think of the Magi, I don't want you to think of just a nice little picture of grandfatherly wise men, but as idolatrous stargazers, people easy to dismiss and yet the least likely to be invited to the birthday party. And you know what? They're there at the very beginning. You see, they're there, and you're invited as well. You're included in his royal family. 
So you're invited into that place. And then you realize around Jesus, it's crowded. And it's crowded with a lot of people that are nothing like you than me. You know, this is what we do, and and I talk about this a lot because I'm so happy that we've continued this through COVID, but our Know Your Neighbor gathering is a picture of that great scene. It literally is wealthy and poor, every ethnicity and culture and orientation. Everybody is invited. We always say our neighbors without homes and our neighbors with homes. And it's not just everybody getting together to tolerate each other. During non-COVID times, it is a feast of epic proportions. It is all-you-can-eat barbecue and live music coming as everyone's invited to join in the joy. Now, throughout COVID, we've had to scale that and change that with six feet of separation, but the food continues, the community continues, and the point is always the same. All are welcome, all are invited, and that's not just verbiage. We actually put that into action with what we do as we eat and talk and come together. That's a picture of God's coming kingdom. See, but that's just one day a month. That then becomes the pattern for the rest of our lives which is all more difficult, all more necessary, in which we take on all the opportunities to experience the unity among diversity of the family of God. The question is, have you experienced this? Do you have people in your life where you would say, I would probably not be this close to this person if I didn't follow Jesus? Do you actively seek to understand the other? Or do your plans and priorities follow the path of least resistance, of comfort so that you just don't have to be bothered? Because let's face it, it is harder to hang out with people that are not like you or like me. Do your social circles include only people of your particular views, your particular political views, spiritual views, economic status, and education? I want you to see the diversity of those people gathered around Jesus right then and right now. Now, one of the pleasures of my life and duties of my life and great calling of my life is I have pastoral meetings with a lot of people. And so part of the unique role of the pastor in the congregation is I get to know each individual person's story. Often people say, you know, Matt, thank you for making time for me. I know you're really busy. The answer is I am busy, but I'm busy meeting with people like you and you and you and you and everybody else. But one of the things I love is when I get a day where on my calendar, and of course with COVID, it's all changes, Zoom meetings and phone calls and taking walks around the neighborhood. But I remember before COVID, I had, I had these two different days They came close to each other. One day, I had a meeting in a downtown law office high up in one of the tall buildings. I mean, it was luxury and wealth and power and education and all of that. And then my next meeting was down the street at one of the shelters, the homeless shelters, where there was kind of the lack of all those things. There was beautiful, vibrant relationship in both. Both people are involved in the life of this church. And then not too much later, I remember having a meeting with one person who If I go to their Facebook page, it is just a running endorsement advertisement for their particular political views in one particular direction. And then later on in that day, I had a meeting with someone whose Facebook page was the mirror opposite of that person politically. And I say, I get to look at what this community looks like of diversity coming together. Now, it's always exciting for me to be able to do that as the pastor, but it's electrifying when I realize that you are starting to do that with one another as well. As we say, the church is people who don't belong together gathering together around Christ for the sake of those who don't yet belong. I think this is what Stan Mast was talking about 
see if I have my quote here for you. When Stan Mast wrote, With Jesus, expect the unexpected. Jesus was saying, and Matthew was teaching, look for wild diversity, not button-down uniformity in the church that would soon be built. Expect surprises. See the unpredictable as the only inevitability worth talking about. Expect barriers and dividing walls to be breached and eradicated. Expect former foes to become sisters and brothers. Those you once shunned to become cherished friends. And it's happening. See, the star led them to the scriptures. The scriptures led them to Jesus. And once they got around Jesus, the Magi realized they were around a lot of people that were nothing like them. This is why we say at Renew that we follow Christ to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world. And every Sunday and every time we gather, we say, you are welcome here however you find yourself today. Because we're living into this great vision. And we're just scratching the surface. And so at this time, particularly on this day, January 3rd, as people are making their New Year's resolutions, I wonder, do you have a category for this resolution of, I want to come closer to Christ, and I'm going to use the tools of the community to do that? Community groups, studying scripture, prayer, conversation with the pastor, choosing to be known by other people. Do you have action steps involved in your plan for 2021? And as you do that, do you have any action steps involved with And I want to make God's presence manifest wherever I go. In your workplace, in your team meetings, in your home, on your street. What does that look like? See, that's what leads us to where we're going to leave this sermon with the question, how do you know this is actually taking place? How do you know that your worship, your affections are focused on the God who created you and can actually forgive you and fulfill you and renew you and not some cheaper counterfeit. How do you know that you're living in to this calling where all are invited? Here's a few ways. First one is, look what the Magi did when they arrived. They knelt down and they worshiped him. That might seem simple. That might be what you expect. But here's the point. If he's the king, you aren't. If he has ultimate authority, then you and I don't. And that's terrifying. I think that's part of what terrified Herod when the Magi went to him and said, we heard the king is born. Where is the king of the Jews? Because actually, king of the Jews was Herod's title. And he knew that if there is a king born in Bethlehem, then I am not going to be the true king of the people. If he has power, then I don't. To be a Christian is to constantly lay down your power and authority on behalf of his. Not because he's a king who will crush you, but because he's a king who you can trust. And so a question for you, Christian friends, is what part of your life can you say, I allow Jesus to override my authority simply because he's king? I mean, this could be a very powerful and scary question to ask someone who's close to you this week. Where do I need to allow Jesus to override my authority? They knelt down before him. But the second thing is, when you're drawn to, and when you find, and when you worship Jesus Christ, you find yourself wanting to bring him your finest resources. We'll get to these gifts that they brought in just a moment, but just notice, the first gift is the gift that God gives to the world in Christ. But the response to that gift is, the Magi pour out their wealth and all that they have and all that they are at his feet saying, you will use this better than I will anyways. And so to be a Christian, you know that this is taking place when you begin to look at your wealth 
at your resources, at your friendship circles, at your relationships, at your passions, at your talents, at your education, at your health. You look at all that you have, not as your token to make your best life now, but you look at them as resources to pour out generously on behalf of God's kingdom that is coming. It turns the whole world upside down. It actually right-sizes our relationship to our things and our stuff and our resources. So the question is, are you worshiping him? Maybe that's a great examination of the new year. When you look at your time, when you look at your finances, when you look at your abilities, you know, open up your calendar, open up your bank account, think about the, the skills and gifts that you have. When you look at that, are they primarily in service to you and those like you? Or are there opportunities for you to redirect those things, to pour them out strategically, thoughtfully, and joyfully? Um, I wasn't going to, this isn't in the notes, but I'll just tell you, one of my favorite things about pastoring this church is that from day one, we are a missional church, which for us means we're a church that exists not just for the good of ourselves. We exist for the good of all our neighbors. We know that we're doing a good job when our neighbors say things like, we don't believe exactly like you, but we're really glad you're here. You're making this neighborhood a better place. I would say that you're experiencing the kingdom of God. You just don't know the king yet, and you're getting to know him through the life of this church. And uh, we also put our money where our mouth is. We fund and we, we help to fund other ministries, both in San Diego and Tijuana and around the world that are doing good work like that. And so at the end of last year, I got to write the, the church's final checks to our ministry partners, to ministries in Tijuana, in San Diego and around the world. And I do it with great joy um, as we continue to pour ourselves out. So I want you to know your church is doing that as you are invited to do that as well, as we're all in this picture of redirecting and worshiping by bringing him our finest resources. I think it's significant that the wise men return, the Magi return back to their homeland. They must have been really tempted to stay in Israel after having seen all that they saw, and yet they went back because of a sense of calling to their particular place. So the calling for you and me is, do you have a sense of direction to whom you are to go? Who are you called to? Who has God put in your life specifically for you to be an agent of this good news through your words and through your deeds. But notice, they go home, but they go home another way. Encountering Jesus actually transforms them. And so they might go back to the place they used to be, but they go an entirely different way. An encounter with Christ means not only new spiritual reality, vertically, worshiping Christ, but it also means a new social life, horizontally, living and going off in another way. What does it mean for you to live another way? And here's where we'll end. Don't try this without the gospel. And I think the pointing finger that we have here, the question we should ask is why worship him at all? Why redirect our affections toward him? Why redirect our sense of unity toward being around him? Why redirect our sense of mission and pouring ourselves out on behalf of others, patterned after his own life? Why worship him at all? Because let's face it, there are many people who have claimed to be king and ruler before, and they turned out to be tyrants. They turned out to be dictators. They demanded worship, and they used it for themselves. Why worship this one, the king in the manger? Why give him your gifts? Why go his way? And the answer 
is in the gifts themselves that he gives, that he receives. These wise men, these magi come and they bring him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold is a gift fit for a king, signifying his royalty. Frankincense was the incense that they would use in the temple. As the smoke went up, signifying that God and humanity had come together, the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped and interlocked. And now they're signifying that he is the place where heaven and earth overlap and interlock, that we can be close to God because God has broken through to us. But myrrh, myrrh's an odd one. I remember 20 years ago, Starbucks had a a cup that said, what is myrrh anyway? And everyone would just chuckle because no one knew. But myrrh was actually a substance that you would use to prepare a body for burial. It was a spice that you would use to prepare a dead body. And so even here in his kingliness, in his priestliness, bringing us closer to God, it's showing he is going to live the life on our behalf we could never live, and he will die a death on our behalf so that we must never die, but live with him forever. And that is why you worship him. Because he uses all his power and majesty not to push you down and crush you and condemn you, but rather to lift you up and to bring you to new life. And when you see this, he's the only king that gives himself on your behalf. You can give yourself to him. You can follow him. You go another way. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we pray now that you would be waking these things up in us. As those first magi were surprised to find you, as their rudimentary understanding of Scripture, as dim and impartial as it was, was at least complete enough to give them courage to put one foot in front of the other and take a long journey that surprised them in the meeting of King Jesus. We pray now, however we find ourselves, with whatever experiences, with church, with spirituality, with you, that right now, the most important thing is that you are breaking through to us. You are leading us back to yourself. Help this to be a church, like that scripture, like that star that leads people more and more into your presence. And as we go on the journey together, help us to be surprised by your grace and your majesty that you pour out on our behalf. Send us out, patterned in the same way, to be your very hands and feet wherever we go. We pray these things in your name. Amen.